You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. Welcome to the 602 Club, coming at you from grungy 80s New York. I am just one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, and with me, coming in all of her spectral glory, Christy Morris. Hello. I'm so, so excited to talk about this one, and maybe we'll even break out the ecto-coolers. Ah, ooh, I hope so. I hope so. Oh, man. You know, I do think that that is the real, like, tragedy of this film is not having a, like, slurpy flavor to go with it. Maybe yeah. there was back in the day, but it feels like there should have been a slurpy flavor, you know. Something slimy. And green. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. So, well, this week uh, we are going to dive into the original Ghostbusters from 1984, since there is going to be a follow-up to this coming out this summer, so we figured that would be fun to do. Uh, Before we get there, though, I just want to say thank you for listening, and and make sure, uh, as you're listening to the show, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and that way, once we publish the show, you get it immediately. Um, if you are on Apple Podcasts, um, you know, it's been a long time since we've gotten a review. And if you're listening to the show and have never given us one on Apple Podcasts, um, help out the show. Help it grow. Um, it really is the the thing that helps uh, us kind of rise in search rankings and all the crazy things that happen over there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, if you like what we do, um, we'll also, uh, you know, read your review out on the show. So. But you can find us wherever podcasts can be had. So it doesn't have to be on Apple Podcasts or an Apple product. Uh, you can also um, find us on Twitter at Trek FM. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. We've got a listeners-only discussion group called the Babel Conference that you can join on Facebook. As well as going over to Trek.fm, there's a contact section where you can send Christine an email. We want to say a huge thank you to our associate producers here on the show through Patreon, Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, Wyam Millette, Daniel Noah. Um, they have been supporting the show for a long time, and they've been doing that through Patreon, which is the way you can make sure that all of the content here on the Trek FM network keeps coming to you each and every week. Um, you know, it's it's very expensive to do this, and so we can't do it alone because we as hosts, we don't have that much money together. Um, so... Mm. Make sure uh, that you go over to patreon.com slash trekfm. You can be part of our team. We've got some great contribution levels. But in the end, honestly, every little bit helps. And again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, Christy, this is something that I'm very interested in because I have not asked you about since we decided to cover uh, Ghostbusters. But I'm wondering what your first ghostbusting experience was like is, is this a movie that you grew up with is this a movie you know you maybe saw a little bit later in life as a teenager um or did you just see it for the first time what was what was your experience yeah it, it's nice when you and i get to have these conversations about our childhoods and everything and um what we've seen and stuff but i i've 
actually saw this one when I was pretty young. Um, I did ask my dad this time if he remembered when the first time was that he showed it to me, but he was like, I, there's a lot of things I remember about you, dear, but I don't remember that. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> um, but it was probably when I was like eight or nine years old. Um, I was born in 87. So uh, it was a little bit later after it came out. I did not get to see it in theaters, but um, it was always something again, like that my dad and I shared because of our love for sci-fi and fantasy. So there was that viewing together with my dad at home because my dad used to do this thing. I don't know if you remember Matt with videotapes, you could record movies off TV. Oh yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. We had a lot of movies that that's how. So we had some of those. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we watched it that way. And then also from going to Dragon Con with my dad and uncle, um, when I was starting at 12 years old, uh, I would see every year in the parade, the, um, Ghostbuster car definitely grew up on it. Yeah. This is, this is funny because, um, this is one that I did not grow up on. Um, you know, having watched it again now, um, I, can realize why you know this wasn't a, a movie my parents were going to show me uh, at that <laughs> point in my life uh, when I was younger because this really is not a children's movie even though you know Stranger Things make it seem like every kid had saw seen Ghostbusters back in the eighties mm-hmm. um, so yeah I didn't see this one until uh, you know a few years back I I'd, I'd watched it and you know f- I would say then it was like oh yeah this is not bad you know it's okay but um, I think you know. It was interesting because rewatching this the other night, my opinion changed um, as to what I mm-hmm. thought of the movie. So I think um, I'm really interested to be able to, to dive into this talk and talk about it. But it and, you know, sometimes movies from, you know, like, say, the 80s where, you know, they're cult classics and everything. Like if you didn't grow up with them, they just don't like ev- you never have the same feeling towards as other people who like really love them. Mm-hmm. Um so I, I'm I'm just really interesting because I'm I'm thinking that I I don't know uh, as we talk I may have gotten a little bit closer to this so um, yeah I mean really interesting thing about this movie uh, that I I was just doing some research about and reading is is I like to do when I cover a movie you know this this age and you know that they kind of go for a more realistic take than they normally that than, than the original idea which was um you know Dan Aykroyd wanted to do this movie with John Belushi and they were going to basically be you know going through space and time as these you know kind of paranormal specialists they would be combating like demons and supernatural forces and whatnot i guess if they traveled through space and time so maybe Mm -hmm. maybe they're like the american versions of the doctor who i don't know um so but you know jim belushi dies and Aykroyd uh teams up with harold ramis to rewrite the script who was also in the movie as egan spengler um and what they do is they really i mean they bring the movie so much more down to earth. Like they, one of the things they do is they set it in, you know, New York city, which is a really interesting choice because by that point in history, New York city is pretty rough place and doesn't have the best reputation with the crime and the rundown that the city Mm -hmm. has experienced. Uh, And so I just thought first, you know, that was a really 
interesting way to go is to make the movie i mean they put it in a very real setting they they set it in new york they film a lot of stuff in new york so it 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 feels very much like this is happening like which is kind of strange yeah you know i was thinking about why this movie became such a hit right out the gate and i think it's a big part because of exactly what you're saying, Matt, that it appealed to the everyman kind of mentality. It, you know, it, it, it really represents four guys that are just trying to get a good job and make ends meet and they're doing the best they can. And I mean, admit, admittedly, Venkman is maybe not doing the best he can. <laughs> no. <laughs> taking advantage of women f- with his pseudoscience, but the rest of them, you know, they're really like the blue collar guys and um, they're really intelligent, but they just can't seem to get a good break until this blows up. And it it feels like something that a lot of people just going through the everyday motions of life could identify with um, for that reason. And then also being set in New York. It's funny because if you think about a lot of other 80s movies around that time, like Crocodile Dundee, for example, it's always showing New York in different ways, um, but trying to make it feel like that classic thing that people loved before. Um, And so I'm glad that this kind of renewed people's love for New York as well. Um, I think, too, that that it really appeals to people because we did get really fascinated in the paranormal around that time as well. You know, after this is when Miss Cleo came about, um, people got really into calling the 1-800 numbers on TV and getting their tarot card readings or um, finding out if they had psychic abilities. I mean, still even mediums have become popular. Um, so I think that it, it also appeals to people that are believing in those kind of things yeah and i think you know i think one of the things by making the movie feel um more realistic is i guess the 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 term um i think one of the things that they do that's really smart is by doing that they never explain anything in the movie which right. is, I think, a real plus to the film. They just kind of plop you in with these characters, and they they are talking about all of these things um, and all of these paranormal ideas and these, you know, they 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 start quoting like uh, what kind of apparition it is and everything, and um, they never really even explain their equipment or anything like that. They just make it seem like this is all so normal. And then the setting that they put the movie in, which is New York City, a place that people are very familiar with. Um, and, you know, again, there's 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 nothing really super fantastical until the last third of the movie. Mm-hmm. And so I think what that really helps you do is buy into this being a real thing. and 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 part of that is like, I think even the humor plays into to that kind of realistic setting where these this, the cavalier nature to which these guys are doing all these things, you know, I mean, <laughs> um, they're wearing proton packs on their back with, you know, unlicensed atomic um, regulators and whatnot. And like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it, they even turn it on for the first time and they kind of like the other two guys back away from it. You know, it's like, 
um, there's a lot of, of realism to what's going on. And, and part of that is because the guys just make you believe that all of this stuff is real. Right. And don't weigh you down with a ton of jargon. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and the, then the jargon they throw out at you, they make it seem like, oh, you should know this stuff, right? Um, and yeah. part of that really helps you believe that this is a real thing in some ways. Yeah, well, and even making some of the things look realistic, like, you know, if you were going to trap a ghost, what would you put it in? Oh, a, a box. It doesn't seem that fantastical. You're like, okay, that makes sense. Sure. I, that suspends my disbelief just enough. And then, you know, where do they put the box when they have to empty it into another box with a lever? <laughs> you know, they, they make it pretty easy for you to get it. But I, I like that they didn't weigh it down with a ton of descriptions or anything. You just are expected to understand this is how the thing works. And, you know, let's move on to the next more important thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and again, I, I think I just think it's what it does is that this kind of more realistic kind of gritty setting of, of New York City and, you know, where these characters are and everything, um, it actually helps you buy the movie in a way that, you know, almost if, if they had tried to really explain things and, and all like that would have made it feel less realistic in some ways. I don't know if any of that makes sense, but um, I, I just really think that they did a smart job with all of that. And it, it made me feel like then the rest of the movie is like I'm buying everything that they're selling at that point. I think that's the thing. Like I, I'm just more easily able to buy what they're selling in the film and then just go with the humor of it all because of the of the the way that they have have you know done this setup and and so um you know i think it just really helps the fantasticalness of the movie feel more quote unquote real even when you know especially by today's standards it's pretty cheesy special effects and stuff but i i go with it because these guys are earnestly selling the film by the way that they're interacting with all of this stuff. Um, right. Yeah. And their comfort level with it, or, you know, maybe not so much comfort level with it, especially like when the first times then, you know, that they uh, interact with ghosts and everything like that, they're freaked out and that kind of stuff. Like all of it, it just seems very natural and normal. And it just, I don't know, just really, especially this time watching it, it really worked for me. I'm glad to hear that because I, I've, Loved it for a long time. And I, I think that one thing also that makes this work so well and feel so natural, like you're saying, Matt, is that a lot of the scenes ended up being ad-libbed. I don't know if you knew that, but there was mm -hmm. a scene, for example, toward the beginning, if you recall, when the bookshelf falls and Vinkman says to Ray, has that ever happened to you before? And he's like, no. And it's so funny because apparently that was an accident while they were filming. The bookshelf just happened to fall over. They were like, oh, let's just leave that in. It works better than cutting it out. Yeah, I, I think I think that's part of having uh, the guys that they do uh, in the film is that, you know, they're such gifted comedians. They're, they're so gifted at what they do that, again, they, they really help sell the movie 
um, mm-hmm. by kind of giving this more realistic take. Again, like this just feels like these guys. It feels real because a, a, a lot of the characterizations, especially, you know, obviously, <laughs> I don't think Peter Venkman is all that far off from who Bill Murray kind of is in real life in some ways, you know, like right. <laughs> just his character. Um, and it's kind of the same character that Bill Murray plays in just about almost every movie. Like he's literally the same type yeah. of character in... Um, Groundhog Day and stuff like that. So, you know, again, I, I think it just really helped. And so, um, which I, I think speaking of, you know, the cast of the movie, I think we love this. People love this movie in general is because the cast sells it to us. Like they, oh, yeah. you know, and I think that really does start with, and, and this movie really skyrocketed Bill Murray even farther if that was possible. You know, I mean, like this this put him on the map like crazy, even though, you know, he had done things like, um, Saturday Night Live and Stripes and things like that. And uh, Caddyshack. This, yep. Caddyshack. This is a movie that helps make him even more of a household name if that was even possible. <laughs> and, you know, it's like now after seeing so many Bill Murray movies, I definitely see that he did often play the same kind of character, but it was his thing. That's that is why other people absolutely love him is the way that Bill Murray can play this guy that's very um uncaring of what anybody thinks and you know thinks he's a real ladies man but just can't seem to get anywhere and it's it's just hilarious and uh adorable at the same time. And then he gets these great lines that you don't expect that add so much to the comedy of the movie. Like when they're messing with Mr. Peck. Yeah, I mean, so I I did want to ask you this. So, um, and just especially as a woman, Mm -hmm. do you do you feel like you know? Do you feel like to this movie could be made today with the portrayal of of him, or do you think he would have been seen as being too much kind of a creep, especially with him like hitting on, you know, college age students at the school. You know, yeah. I, I don't know if if this works as a portrayal anymore. I mean, because let me put it this way. Um, and I, I, there's no other way to say this, but I, I think that Bill Murray in many of his performances comes off as playing the l- lovable ass mm-hmm. in his movies. You know, like I just don't know any other way to say that. Like that's just what he portrays a lot of the time. But the way that he kind of, especially I think he was like, he pursued the way he pursues Dana, the way he's pursuing, you know, one of his students and everything. It felt a little, t- a I don't know, maybe I'm just a little being too sensitive or something. So that's why I'm going to ask you. No. It just felt a little swarmy. Yeah. I, I think especially in the beginning, it becomes very obvious what he's doing when he's only electrocuting the male student and he's giving the female student all this praise and then asking what time she can come back later at night. And, you know, when he's a professor and she's a student, especially it comes across creepy. Um, but then also that she seems so much younger than him and that he's doing it in this way that's very um, just awkward and you can tell what he wants out of the relationship. It's, it is gross. That scene in particular 
it goes a little bit too far for me. So I will say that's my one criticism of the movie is that I, I don't like that scene. I think they could have done it a little bit less on the nose with that. And it still would have worked for what they're trying to make Vinkman like. Um, but it, it didn't bother me as much the way that they have him interact with Dana because he does stay behind the line of inappropriate. And then, you know, of course, later when he had the opportunity to take advantage of her, thank goodness you find out he is a good guy right, and doesn't right, do that. Right. Well, and I will and I will say this too: the difference between Dana and him is she's a fully grown woman who mm-hmm. who can make up her own mind as as to how she wants to deal with this guy coming onto her, right? And and at the beginning of the movie, she she disregards him and and doesn't want anything to do with him. You know, she tells him to leave, and he does, and all. So, um, you know, that's different than come. I guess the power dynamic that you get with him preying on a student and you're just like oh that's just super creep dude right it's like using the respect she has for him as a teacher to then twist it into something gross exactly exactly and it's just you know it's it's something i think that we're a little bit more cognizant of today um and that you know those kind of things you know, just not appropriate so and i think that's okay for us to to be able to call out because I, yeah. I don't think then it was appropriate either. You know, it's not it's not as though this behavior should have been appropriate then. Yeah, but it's crazy because you do have to say around that time in the 80s, so many movies were known for being this inappropriate and worse. Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, it was I a sign of the times, correct. unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Bill Murray is hysterical in this role, you know, when, when they're talking to the mayor about all the things that are going to happen and he's like, dogs and cats living together, you know, like just Mm -hmm. the, the, his ad libs are, are really funny, uh, in the movie. Um, I think, you know, uh, he is at his full Bill Murrayist in this film in many ways. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, he... He kind of becomes the the one that most people pay attention to, I think, in the film. You know, like people tend to really pay attention to him because he's the loudest. And um, honestly, too, I was doing some research. He's actually probably the reason that we don't have Eddie Murphy in this movie because the studio oh. wanted, um, you know, Bill Murray to have a bigger role. And therefore, you know, we 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 actually don't get Eddie Murphy in the role um, of Winston, be, be, honestly, because of that, because they he would have the, overshadowed the role Winston got really uh, condensed because they wanted Bill Murray to have more of the spotlight. So, and, you know, I, I will say on the rewatch, I was surprised at how much more you do see Bill Murray than you do the other three guys. Um, mm-hmm. I just didn't remember it being that big of a difference. Um, yeah. I do wish, I wish we had gotten more Winston and I wish we had gotten more Harold Ramis. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, yeah. And Harold Ramis as, um, Spangler, I think is hysterical. And part of that is because he plays that cold calculated scientist who like is the straight man for the group. Um, mm-hmm. so well, so well and then his relationship that he has with Andy Potts character Janine is hysterical because they really kind of gravitate toward each other um because of that and I just I really I thought it was very funny um and I just enjoyed his character um in his very dry deliveries were fan 
fantastic. Oh, yes. His scene when he says that he collects spores, molds, and whatever. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) And he just says everything like, you know, in the most matter-of-fact way, that dryness is what makes him so funny. I always wondered what he must have been like off screen to hang out with, you know, if he was the same kind of person or if he was a completely different personality to that. But, um, you know, uh, sadly, we will never know since he passed away in 2014. Um, but I, I did want to make sure to mention that it, it's been nice to see the homage that all of the rest of the guys have paid to Harold Ramis and said how integral he was to writing this as well as yeah. the character he played. I mean, it is him that we owe the fact that this was taken and put in New York like he wanted this movie to be a New York movie. And mm-hmm. I think they made the right decision. I think he made absolutely the right decision in in helping, um, you know, give that idea to Ackroyd and and then them running with it. I think it absolutely works. So, um, I really, you know, I appreciate um his portrayal in the movie. And again, I think he just adds a lot because, you know, the, the what's interesting is you know you have the three different personalities, uh, and you know Bill Murray is the mouthy one, and you know. Harold Ramis is basically the scientists. And then Dan Aykroyd's character, Ray, is kind of like the go-getter, you know, like, and and just the mm-hmm. the one, the glue that kind of keeps everybody together. Um, and he's just kind of like a happy-go-lucky guy. Um, one of my favorite lines of his, too, is when they're t- he's talking like, oh, man, we have to go back to the real world. Yeah, I loved academia all the money and no res- and he didn't have to have any results like it just is very <laughs> funny um very true in some ways like so but i yeah i loved his character and again i think he kind of feels like the glue that keeps the other two guys together and keeps you know like he's the one who makes everything too like he seems to be the 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 brains behind the group in the sense of like being the mechanic yeah, that's true. Actually, he he's the guy that puts together the the traps and the way that the ghost disposal system is going to work, and um, explaining what their energy needs are. Um, it, he kind of starts to encroach a little bit on the scientist role of Harold Ramis, but they do a good job still of making sure that you discern the difference between the two of them, um, and that really um, Spengler is more of the bookish guy and that ray is more of the the heart of the group um i really love uh ray um having his moment when vinkman says go get her ray that was hilarious yeah you know i i think that the other thing about ray too is that he is the optimist of the group he's the one who is um He's he really is the one who's like in this for the science, you know. He's he's in this for the excitement of it all. Um, mm-hmm. He's in this for um, the the sheer enthusiasm of it. I think that's what makes him like so wonderfully fun in the movie because he's like an effervescent child in some ways about all of this, and so um, and I think he's he's needed in that because he's needed against the cynicism that you get with, you know, Bill Murray's character in the, in the cold heart science of, of Harold Ramis's character. So right. yeah, I just think uh, uh, the movie is, is, is cast very well in that. And I really appreciate, you know, um, 
what they do with with the characters in that. So it's just really cool. And although she doesn't get much of a part in this, um, I do have to give a shout out to Annie Potts because I love her in Pretty in Pink. And this was the first time I had ever seen her in a movie was actually Ghostbusters. And she just is so good at that snarky tone and then of turning it on completely differently when she's around Spangler and showing, you know, like when he comes out from under her desk the way she's just acting like this is a normal everyday thing. And it's like, well, usually you would get up and leave the room if a guy is under your desk. (laughs) Yeah, that was great because it doesn't come across as any other, like any other way. Like you could, if it obviously it's Bill Murray in that scene, like it's totally different, right? It's a sexual innuendo type of joke. Um, Whereas with those two, it's like, no, this is just matter of fact. No, he's putting my computer together. This has nothing to do with anything else kind of thing. Yeah. It's more of a meat cute than creepy. Yes. 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 Because that's the moment where then, then they talk about, you know, what their hobbies are and how she likes to read. And he's like, the written word is dead. You know, he gives his line about collecting spores and fungus. So, like, yeah, <laughs> all of that works because of those two. Like, I think, uh, yeah, all of that works because of them, which is really, really fun. Like, I think yeah. they just are really fun characters. So, what did you, what did you think about uh, Rick Moranis's Lewis? I loved him because I also love Rick Moranis. He's adorable, and I wish he would be in everything, but he decided to leave the spotlight and that's his choice, but he was great. I also mm. loved him in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. But, yeah, he's so good at this adorable kind of loser that, you know, he he tries so hard to reach out and talk to people and maybe kind of has a crush on his neighbor Dana, but she's just not interested. And he's an accountant, and he's trying to come across as cool, and he just can't seem to get what he wants in life i think that's the thing that uh i thought was really i mean he plays the very classic um geek you know um and he does it really really well he does it with kind of a lot of pizzazz and it's pretty funny um and so i definitely uh, enjoy that about how he does that um you know, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, he becomes he becomes a character who's who's a little bit more of a plot need because they need a second person, you know, to to right. To, you know, uh, and so with that, I mean, I don't have a problem with it, but his character isn't quite as important. And it's meant to be much. I mean, he's obviously just pretty much comic relief for the most part. And mm-hmm. again, that's not a bad thing. It just is what it is. Um, but he does it well. I mean, that's the thing is Rick Moranis was very good at like knowing what this character was and playing it to the nth degree. Um, mm-hmm. And it's great. You know, like that he's funny. Well, so. and especially if you look at the difference in Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis before they transform into the gatekeeper and the key master and then after that shows off their acting chops right there. Because, I mean, he did such a good job of turning into this, you know, like he's in a trance kind of guy with the, you know, helmet on his head where they're trying to figure out what's going on inside his brain. And he's just keeps saying, I'm the key master. I just I thought that the whole scene of Rick Moranis trying to talk to uh, Spangler 
was so funny and he keeps handing him things. <laughs> yes, yes, like yeah, and and even just I think one of the things that makes it good is like there's such a juxtaposition between those two characters as well even when they just meet in the hallway you know she's very you can already tell she's a very successful kind of metropolitan woman and Mm -hmm. he is successful in what he does he lives in the same building but he's also like the accountant that has a hard time learning how to talk to people you know and all of that and so like again like you said the way that they play it together is um is pretty well done and so yeah i i really i really liked i thought he was funny in the movie mm-hmm. um so gordy weaver uh what did you think of you know her and her character dana and then of course you know getting to play zool as well i think she kind of steals the show i mean not to tout bill murray uh but she really shows off how great of an actress she is in, like I said, the transforming from her initial role as Dana into Zool. And definitely when they were actually doing her levitating, apparently she was just wearing a full body cast and was like hanging from a pole. So it's so strange the amount of different things she had to do just for this role that you don't realize. Um, And then I I think that she plays that difference in personality incredibly well and acting like a dog apparently in her audition was what got her those scenes. I thought that was so funny. Yeah, I think she does a really good job. Um, You know, again, like you said, she has to play both parts and, 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 you know, play one who, you know, obviously the the first the first go uh, with the character, she's much more reserved as a character. She's kind of a little bit more, I would say, uh, slightly you know more uptight maybe. Um, mm-hmm. And then she has to go to being the completely like whacked out, open, you know, almost it, kind of like she's almost on a on a weird drug trip type of character. Mm, yeah um and you know and and you know not repressed in any way shape or form um and so i think she does it really well and with if with a lot of of good humor uh to the way she portrays it too because even some of her subtle movements when like he's trying to like you know settle her down um peter vankman is trying to settle her down and he's like I cross your arms over your chest. Now let me talk to Dana and just even some of her subtle movements and everything I thought were um, just really funny. Uh, And so I really, I I, like that's the stuff that I was kind of picking up on what she was doing that I thought was really cool. Um, And and again, just really well done. Um, And I'll say this, like Dana's part is kind of minor in the sense, like, she doesn't have as much to do, for sure, as any, even the guys, right? But mm-hmm. um, what she has to do, she makes the most of on screen. So I think she does a really good job. Absolutely. Well, and especially that whole back and forth between her and Bill Murray. First of all, seeing the two of them act together, which are two such big personalities anyway, off screen. But then it, that whole scene of the back and forth of her trying to sleep with him and him trying to get her to stop 
was just hilarious. And I think he even saying he gave her, he gave her some CCs of something. I think it was a tranquilizer. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty funny. And she's panting like a dog in her sleep. Yes. That was hysterical. <laughs> I also, one of the characters, and, and sadly, you know, we talked about the fact that Ernie Hudson as Winston does not get enough to do in the movie, really. And it, and, But mm-hmm. what he has to do, like, some of his lines were so funny when he's like, so do you believe in Jesus? I, I don't really, I don't know. Uh, he's like, I do. Man, that Jesus has style. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) it just reminded me of um, Talladega Nights. He's like, I like to think of my Jesus in a tuxedo t shirt because it says, I'm serious, but I also like to party. You know, right? (laughs) Jesus got style. Um, And then, of course, that leads to them talking about, you know, do you know the Bible? And Dan Aykroyd's Ray is like, oh, that reminds me of Revelation, like 713, I think it was. And he quotes the verse and it's like, yeah, for somebody who doesn't really believe in God, you sure know your Bible really well. <laughs> right. Well, in my favorite Winston line, period, which I'm sure is most people's, but this one he says, if someone asks you if you're a God, you say yes. Yeah, <laughs> that was great. That was the really delivery great. of that is perfect. Like, you idiot. But yeah, I, I think that he gets some really great one-liners. But it's also nice to see that the three of them can't do it alone. And that even with that many people, that they were still missing something and found it with Winston. And that, you know, he didn't even have an interview or anything. They were just like, yeah, you got the job, whatever. Let's move on. Um, so I wish we had seen more of why he came to them in the first place, but what we get is still great. And I think that really completes the group and provides that other aspect of like this strong guy who's not like bookish like the rest of them, Mm -hmm. but he's still willing to jump in with both feet and he's on board and ready to go. I think that was the thing I was really interested in is that you know, I feel like this guy does a good job of holding his own with these other massive comedic talents, like, which is great. I think, yeah, you know, anytime that he has a funny line or anything it really works for me. Um, and I, again, I liked his character and I really, I wanted more of him and it kind of makes me want to see Ghostbusters too, just to see if he has a larger role than in that movie so right yeah same here and and it's nice to see i don't know if how much you've seen of these guys off screen talking about in interviews or doing signings or anything but i actually saw ernie hudson at dragon con as well i didn't get his autograph uh because i just didn't have enough money but um he's really proud all of them are to have done this and for what it did for their careers but also just seeing what it's meant to fans um so i hope that people do realize that ernie hudson even doesn't feel like the role being condensed for winston in this movie took away as much from the character as some people might think that's cool yeah what did you end up thinking of the walter peck character i thought he was hilarious I thought he was perfect, the perfect depiction of what I would think of as a, you know, uber rule following government rep that's sent to shut the place down. Uh, I do feel like he gets a bad rap because he's probably is just doing his job. But 
you know, he wants to get it done and they're being difficult. But then, too, if you see it from the guy's perspective, from the Ghostbusters, they feel like he's coming in and making all these assumptions and then blaming the explosion on them when it was his fault to begin with for shutting it down. You you see it from both sides. Yeah, see, that was something that I thought was really interesting. Obviously, um, the thing I realized, the, the, the more than any other character, he's a plot device. Mm-hmm. Um, they needed a character to come in and do what he did so that they could, you know, then have all the spirits released. So then, you know, um, all of the other supernatural stuff can happen. But I think it's also kind of like an archetype, you know, to have the, the character who's going to come on and stand against you. And what was interesting is that he's so against these guys when everybody else in the city seems to love them. Like even the mm-hmm. police are bringing them, you know, uh, Lewis's character when he's, you know, possessed because they don't know what to do with them and they're like well you guys work with this stuff so here you take them you know so it it would just seem interesting that that this one part of the government had 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 an axe to grind and so it made me wonder like is there like is was it not just you know peter venkman being a jerk to him was it something else that you know like has caused him to like not like these guys or something because it just seemed Mm -hmm. kind of odd for him to be the one person in the city who's kind of pissed off at these dudes for there's no real apparent reason other than his interaction with Venkman. I wondered in my own head canon if it was also just that he like I said is such a rule follower that he's coming in and trying initially to understand what's going on there and how it could possibly affect the environment and doesn't get it so then he turns on them. That's what I thought to myself anyway. Um, but you know I mean the the actor was Funny in the role, the whole scene where they go back and forth with him in the office of the mayor was, you know, hysterical. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, and I think he plays it so straight. Again, he plays it so straight so those other guys can go crazy around him. And it it works perfectly. Like, he does exactly what he needs to do in the role to make, to, to make the story itself work. And, yeah. you know, too, you... Like he does a great job of being that character in the movie that's against your heroes that you hate, yeah. And like in classic eighties form, you know, he he's like, uh, you know, the the um principal in the Breakfast Club, and you know, or Ferris Bueller's Day Off, or you know, any of those type of movies is 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 it that you have to you have that character, and again, it's kind of like. There's probably some reasons that, you know, they give in these movies about why those characters are the way they are. But in, in some ways, it's just inexplicable and you don't really care. So, yeah, um, there's yeah, always because, one. Yeah, <laughs> there's <laughs> always one. Um, so kind of rewatching the movie now. And, you know, how does how do the ghosts work for you? And how does this kind of like, you know, it's kind of a strange story about an ancient Babylonian god returning because of weird cult followers building a building that's like an antenna for spiritual forces. So it's yeah. a pretty whacked out story. You know, it's funny because since I did grow up on it, I remembered it in my mind as being better effects than that. Um, then I, then I realize now they actually were, but I mean, for the time they were pretty revolutionary and we hadn't seen a lot of those kinds of things on screen before. So I can look back and say, 
hey, it was a 1984 movie and the lightning looks just like it did in Highlander. So I'm okay with it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I I still love Slimer. I think that that little green ghost was adorable, but also disgusting. And you constantly want to see him on screen. Um, I did think it was crazy how many times sometimes they added more horror elements like when you're thinking Ghostbusters, you don't think that you're going to see the librarian come at you and start looking like a dead mummy or the taxi driver that looks like a corpse driving a taxi. Those I didn't expect to see again. I don't know why I didn't remember seeing them in the first place, but it freaked me out all over again. Yeah, I think, you know, it was interesting because this is the first comedy movie that had an extensive special effects budget which you can see that they're absolutely putting everything they can with the technology they have at the time you know and i think for the most part it works i I think probably the worst effects the ones that don't really hold up are the guardians that we get you know the the dog like the dogs they they do not look good for the most part um the their jumping is really bad yeah um (laughs) and I was reading it. It took them forever to film the scene of them getting across the street when he's supposed to be chasing um, Lewis. So, but beyond that, I think everything, you know, even the, like the Stave Puff Marshmallow Man is just, it works. It looks funny. Um, I think it, it, the, the goofiness of that is smart for Ghostbusters. Again, instead of going really super creepy and scary, they go with something that's just utterly ridiculous. Mm -hmm. So they do kind of tread that line of, is this a movie you would show kids, right? You know, like, by going that direction, they make it much more kid-friendly in that way, even though the Mm -hmm. rest of the movie and the innuendo is not kid-friendly, I would say. Um, but you know, and then I think they, they kind of do something smart in the sense that they, they create this weird cultish thing and, you know, the Babylonian God and all that kind of stuff. And, and like, you just kind of buy it because it feels like one of those weird conspiracy theory things. Right. Yeah. Like you're like, well, I know cults are bad, so. Yeah, exactly. So I think all of that really works. And, and again, um. The effects are what they are from the time, and I'm, I'm not going to judge them too harshly for obviously not living up to 2020. Um, right. So I, I think they they still do the job they need to do for the movie, and they don't take anything away from it, it you know, even now. And, I mean, adding in the other practical effects that enhance what they're trying to do with the special effects, like goop left behind from slimer to say Mm -hmm. that you know that's what he does is he just gets all this disgusting muck everywhere was great i mean and it it it, then they have ray coming in and acting like this is this new revolutionary thing like oh my gosh there's physical elements of uh you know spirit forces here in our world and we're touching them and you're like ray that's gross so i loved that they added those little pieces that were cheap and easy to do but made it more tangible yes no i agree i think you're absolutely right um how did the music work for you because obviously main theme ghostbusters still works for everyone 
Um, but how did the rest of the, the music for the soundtrack and then the other popular music that they kind of added in throughout the film work? I thought it was fine. I, I think obviously the title song is the thing people remember the most. Um, but I, I especially romanticize kind of the sound of the siren on the Ghostbusters car, because that's something that I feel like you, you hear that noise and you immediately know what you're about to see. And then I've heard it when I was watching the Dragon Con Parade with my dad and would see the car coming up the street and all the people dressed as Ghostbusters coming out and walking around it. Um, it that always makes me happy. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it was good. I mean, it. there were times when I wouldn't have known what song to use when you're looking into the spirit world anyway. <laughs> so it got a little weird. But yeah, I mean, overall, I I, I like it. What about you? Yeah, I I don't actually um, have too much of a problem with it. I don't love when they do the soundtrack. And it's... I, I don't love the 80s synth when they go... Because at the beginning of the movie, they start off with, obviously, the Ghostbusters theme, you know, song, mm-hmm. which is awesome. Um, but then they, they go to a, a, a more symphonic score, like a classical score. And then throughout the movie, you know, they drop in these these songs of the day, pop songs of the day, whatnot. Um, and then there are some places where they kind of go to the synth score. And I just don't love 80 synth. So in those places, yeah. it doesn't quite work for me. And part of it, I just, because there's a, there's a cheesiness to it. And because I just, it feels cheap to me for the most mm-hmm. part to do synth. Um, and so I wish that they had just kind of stuck with one type of soundtrack instead of kind of mixing it up. But, um, you know, it. we all remember Ghostbusters music as just being the Ghostbusters thing, and right, it still works. So, And, I mean, you know, it, it's exactly what you were saying it is as far as it's a sign of the era it was made in. It wasn't made to be this timeless thing with classical music throughout. I think that it kind of sets itself up because of being a comedy as well. And then being, you know, in, in the early eighties with the big hair and everything that it was going to use some synth and be very typical of the era that it was in. Yeah. So an interesting question. I think before we wrap up something that you had kind of um, brought to me was, you know, why does this movie become a cult classic like a, a movie that like just still has the heart of so many people why do you think it's endured i think because it appeals to all of us in a way that we can relate to i think that having it be four guys that are just trying to get by and end up stumbling into this career make it so relatable on a level that anybody could understand. And it's not all of this jargon that you wouldn't understand or that's over your head to make you feel like this is um, above your pay grade or something. It feels like these are everyday guys and that they're friends and in spite of their flaws or whatever, that they make it work and that you're kind of along for the ride with them that in the beginning you can tell obviously Venkman is not really believing that they're going to see a ghost until they actually do. And then he's completely 
proven wrong and brought in for the ride. So I, I think that it took off like it did because it was so relatable on that base level. Yeah, that's that's really, you know, I just hadn't really thought about it. But I think I think you're really on to something about this being about three everyday guys, even though um, one of them was a PhD, although, you know, paranormal psychology. Okay, um, whatever that means. But yeah, uh, but, and I think that what, what was kind of interesting too is uh, in some ways Venkman is kind of the uh, Indiana Jones type character where he doesn't believe in the supernatural even though he's a part of this group, you know, like mm-hmm. Indiana Jones. He doesn't really believe in the supernatural, but by the end of, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, he definitely believes in it by that point. And so this movie is is about these guys really you know, like you said, they're finding their place and um, they're finding what they're good at. And it's kind of the classic American story, right? You can, you know, that, that thing of, Oh, you can be anything you want to be, you know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, I think people like that. And I, I was watching it with my wife the other night and, um, we were just surprised at how well it still works. Like the humor really came out, you know, and, and it, and to me, the movie, um, stuck with me in a way that it hadn't the first time I saw it. And so, you know, I think that's the thing that I was coming to with uh, why it's still a cult classic is because I still, I feel like this is one of those movies that even if you didn't grow up with, you can watch it now and still at least appreciate it for why it's popular. And more than that, you may actually like it. Um, yeah, and so I'm really interested to see for you. You know, obviously you grew up with this. Um, where is your rating for Ghostbusters? So I will tell you, I rated it on Vudu on the app uh, after I watched it because I had to rent it this time, um, and I gave it a five out of five stars, which I will do again um, because I, I, in spite of that one little criticism I have about how women are kind of portrayed in this era of movies, it's not only this movie that has that issue um and it's not too too bad it's just that really that one scene at the beginning that bothers me so overall i think it's a near perfect movie and for me it is also because of the nostalgia but i think that it has a lot of heart and it shows everyday people overcoming extraordinary odds in a funny way um And, you know, I saw also when I was looking at more like behind the scenes stuff that Harold Ramis said that he thinks it works so well, especially for the younger generation, because it enables you to deal with death better. That it has people facing the possibility of death and not being afraid and understanding that no matter what happens with them, what you believe in, that they're standing up and not being afraid. So I think that that was something I didn't realize on the surface that you're thinking about when you're watching this movie that I was like, that's really insightful. So, yeah. Um, it, so I, when I first watched this movie, I had it at three out of five. And <gasps> so when I went back to rate it again, it's four out of five, you know? So it's when I hope a whole star for me. Um, I did, I really enjoyed this movie. It was actually one I was thinking, Oh, I should maybe pick this up so I could buy it. And like, so I can watch it anytime I want. Um, it is. It's really fun. Again, I think most of it still really works. 
uh, except for what we talked about. Um, you know, I think the the movie just has a sense of joy to it. I think that may be the thing that sticks with people. It's like, mm-hmm. there's just a joy to this movie. And I think it's partly because everybody who's making it seems to be having a really good time doing it. And... I think it works still, which, you know, to watch a movie that this is this old and I still feel like for the most part holds up is good. So, yeah, um, yeah it's so much fun. And, and I'm really interested, you know, uh, you know, if you want us to cover Ghostbusters 2, let us know. Um, and uh, we'll definitely be covering the newest Ghostbusters that will come out this summer. So it'll be really interesting afterlife. To get that. Yeah, afterlife. So uh, but uh, Christy, it, uh, you know. I think it's time to recommend something with recommendations. Yes, I've actually got a really interesting one this time, and you might not expect um, from my other recommendations, but I was looking through Netflix the other night and noticed a new documentary that I had not known was even coming out, which is called Betty White, First Lady of Television. And I'm sure you've probably noticed, Matt, that Betty White has surged in popularity again. Um. But she's somebody that I really have always admired, not only for her work on Gilmore, um, not Gilmore Girls, Golden Girls, sorry, from her work on Golden Girls, but also everything she's done since then and how she really kind of reinvented herself as this slightly offensive character that you don't expect out of an adorable old woman. So, uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend watching that documentary on Netflix, Betty White, First Lady of Television. It really shows you a lot about how her career started and how she's really a self-made woman who was gaining popularity at a time when women were not the primary people on screen. So I think you'll really enjoy it. That's cool. Um, For me, I uh, so with the new Dune movie that's coming out at the end of the year from Deneuve, um, which I'm so excited about, I decided to reread Dune. And then I decided to also continue with the series, which I've never done. So I'm recommending um, reading Dune if you've never read it, which is a fascinating book. It's so good. I, I, I liked it so much more the second time I've read it now than the first time. And then I just read Dune Messiah, which is the second book in the series, and I found it just as good and fascinating. So I'm recommending those two books to you, um, especially with the fact that we have the new Dune film coming out at the end of the year. So, um, And I have but, not read the books, so. Yeah, I mean, you know, I would say this, you know, Dune is like Lord of the Rings for sci-fi. In the sense of like the type of world that's being created, the amount of detail in it and everything. It's phenomenal. Um, I, yeah, really loved it. So can't rec- highly recommend it enough. Uh, it just, the, the reread with Dune was fantastic. And then getting into Dune Messiah, I liked it just as much. So yeah, it was, it was great. But uh, Chrissy, you know, maybe uh, people want to just catch up with you, see what's going on with you, and where can they find you online? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bespin Bell. And then if you want to talk sometimes, I'm also lurking around the Babel Conference. And you can also find me on a couple of other podcasts aside from this one. I do a show 
pretty regularly with my friend Teresa called Sabres and Spells, where we talk about pretty much anything geeky that we want. And we're changing up our format to be a little more relaxed and less outlined. So I hope you'll stick around for our next episode. Uh, and then I do a show on the Tracks Network called Planet Leia, where myself and five other women from around the world talk about our opinions on Star Wars topics. And then lastly, I do a segment once a month on the Star Wars report called Fashion in Five about men's and women's Star Wars fashion. So I'm sure we'll have some more stuff for Clone Wars coming up soon for the final season. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and Vero under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two. Um, I'm here in the network. I also do the Orb with Chris Jones when we get a chance. We get together and we talk about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I am on the Nerd Party Network. I do two shows over there. One is called Owl Post with Drea Kaufman. We are talking about Harry Potter one chapter at a time. Um, I'm doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars each and every week. And then I also do a little show called Cinema Stories with my good friend Courtney as we talk about films through the lens of faith. But thank you so much for joining us. And I ain't afraid of no ghost. <laughs> <laughs>